welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Leadership matters, and it matters to a startup organization like the Christian Church in its first century as much as it matters to the church today. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series, Salt and Light, God's Vision for the Church, with this sermon entitled, The Leadership of the Church, which covers Titus chapter 1. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Beloved, hear again the heart of our God. What life is not of value to him? He is the father of the fatherless, the defender of widows and orphans. He grieves for the weak and the needy. He rages at the sight of oppression. He rejoices at the return of even one lost sheep. He welcomes little children with open arms and condemned thieves with an open heart. He shows no partiality, but loves small and great, rich and poor, slave and free alike. We are precious to him, every one of us, broken but beautiful image bearers, worth the life of the beloved son. Should not Christ's church love the same? Born of such mercy, should we not be people of mercy? Or have we lost our way? Have we forgotten that our God desires mercy, not sacrifice? That the fast he chooses is to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to share our bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into our homes. This is the call of Christ's church, to be a people whose mercy bears witness to the wideness of God's. Mercy makes the watching world stop and stare, because in it, the heart of God shines brighter still. Beloved, we are not our own. We are the blood-bought sheep of the great shepherd. We are salt and light. Well, good morning. Welcome to all of you here in person, online, at home. Um, In the video you just watched, there's uh, a line that just grabbed me when I heard it first. It says, mercy, Uh, makes a watching world stop and stare. Such a powerful truth uh, that is true of the the body of Christ. You know, I think back on this week and uh, particularly of the events of Wednesday afternoon and and think about how for uh, much different reasons than mercy, a watching world stopped and stared. And... um, when, when we watch something unfold like we did, in many ways, it's uh, it, it just I feel this sense of a lack of words, of knowing what to say, um, and and so I just I jotted a couple things down. I'm not going to take a long time at all, but I want to share just a few things that um, that tie into where we are uh, as a country and what the church is to be. Um, first, I think it's worth stating this, uh, just for the record, that, that what we watched unfold at the Capitol uh, was both astounding and condemnable in every way. Uh, I hope that there would be none among us, regardless of political fr- uh, preference, who would condone or celebrate uh, what unfolded for any reason. We, we grieve what happened, the loss of life, including the, uh, the life of an officer, Um, But perhaps maybe what was most astounding and disturbing was seeing these events unfold and in the midst of it, um, images of Christianity being carried, words of Jesus' salvation being carried while rage was on display and hatred was being spewed as, as though the mission of the church is to overturn government. Um, and so there's great sadness that filled my heart as, uh, as I watched. But secondly, these events that we saw this week, um, they remind me of the importance of leadership, the critical importance of leadership. And I'm not talking about leadership uh, in our government. I'm not talking about leadership 
Um, yeah, anything out there. I, I'm talking about leadership in the church. And, and if I could be so bold, I would say this. I would I'd say that, that leadership, church leadership, godly leadership in his church is the most important leadership in the world. Which I realize in saying that um, puts me even under more, more, even more scrutiny. Uh, the scriptures tell us that, that if you aspire to be a leader in the church, that you will be held at a, uh, accountable at even a higher level. So I understand that in making that, that's no small statement, but, but the church, God set up the church to be what is ultimately salt and light to the world. And so therefore the leadership of the church, uh, the, the transformation that we long to see in the world around us as his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven is first and foremost through the body of Christ, which means the leadership of that body is of utmost importance. And so a couple of things that I just thought about as I was processing through this is thinking about why leadership in the church is so, so important. And here's a few things that I just want to share with you. So bear with me just two or three minutes. God, through good church leadership, recenters us. Because we are a people, myself included, who tend to get off center from where God desires us to be. And so God, through good church leadership, recenters us. He recenters us, uh, recenters our hopes. He recenters our fears. And he recenters our passions. So here's a few thoughts with those three. Uh, good church leadership helps us recenter not on the presumed hope of a battered nation, but on the sure hope of an unshakable kingdom. Our verse for the year for our staff, and we would encourage you to, to choose this as your verse of the year as well, to, to commit to memory and to think about and recite often is Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. And, and it says, therefore, let us be grateful for, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Therefore, let us offer to God acceptable worship in awe and in reverence. For our God is a consuming fire. I love that. We have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we rejoice in that and we offer worship to God as a result God, through good church leadership, helps us recenter our hopes, not on a four-year term of an imperfect president, but on the eternal reign of a perfect king. God, through good church leadership, helps us fear less about what might happen because we fear the one who sovereignly ordains what does happen. In good church leadership, God, through good church leadership, helps us take our passion. He helps take our passions and focus them on the true enemy. The true enemy, which Ephesians 6, 12 says, for we do not worship or we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Good spiritual Godly church leadership reminds us that the battle is most fought through people on their knees. And good church leadership, God through good church leadership, helps us become a people who fight just as passionately for personal lordship as they do for personal liberty. Are we a people who are fighting every day to be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, regardless of circumstances, if, God forbid, liberty is even a question. We long to be a people submissive to King Jesus, centered on his kingdom. And if you are watching online and you're joining us by or here in person and you're a visitor and you're not typically an attender or member of Perimeter Church, and you have been attending a church that doesn't constantly recenter you on the hope and the surety and, and the goodness and the joy 
and the reign of King Jesus and his kingdom, then I would strongly encourage you find a new church because that's the mission of the church, to take a lost and dying people who have placed their hopes and their fears and their passions in all kinds of things and have them settled once and for all at rest once and for all in the joy and in the goodness of the presence of Jesus. So let me pray to that end. Father, would you do that among us? Would you make us a people who are not gripped with fear and who do not have misplaced hope. But, oh God, make us a people who fear the one who reigns over it all. Lord, make us a people who hope in the surety of your kingdom coming. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear you in the midst of the chaos. And, Father, as we think about even what you preached, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to be a people who are, who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are peacemakers, who are merciful. Lord, I pray that you'd make us that kind of people, both individually and corporately. Lord, that through the mercy of the church, a watching world would stand and would stare. So do, oh God, do what only you can do in and through us. Make us a people of salt and of light. And we pray it in the matchless, the preeminent, supreme name of Jesus. Amen. So leadership, that's what we're talking about this morning. The reason I framed even those opening comments in the context of good church leadership is because the Bible makes such a big deal about leadership, church leadership. Now, if you, if you do a, a Google search and you just type in articles on leadership, which I know is a broad topic to search, but if you type that in, you're going to get 802 million results because the, church, uh, because the world is fascinated with leadership, and rightfully so. We are a people that innately know, whether we believe in a higher being or not, we, we automatically sense that we are a people that were made or exist to be led. We crave someone to lead us. We long for someone to take the reins and tell us what to do and where to go, and so as a result, we want good leadership, so much so that uh, document upon document, article upon article, book upon book, video upon video, and even movie upon movie has been made about good leadership. We, we take good leaders in society and the world and we prop them up on pedestals that are probably much higher than they should ever be. Because why? Because we love good leaders. And when you look through those 802 million results, and I mean like the first couple of pages of those 802 million results, you see all kinds of stuff automatically that, uh, that will immediately, if you're in a position of leadership, cause you to begin to have a slight panic attack that you're not measuring up. The 12 things a great leader does, the 15 things that a great leader does not do, what great leadership looks like in the corporate business, marketplace, whatever, business leadership, the, what, what, corp, what, what good leadership looks like in the, in the schools, in the educational realm, what good leadership looks like uh, in all kinds of facets of society, in politics, whatever it may be. But you know, there's more articles and videos on church leadership that I could ever read or watch. And when I do start to read and watch some of them, I go, man, I'll never measure up. But why? Why do we care so much about leadership? Part of it is because we innately know that we, were, that we were made, that we exist to be led. But another reason is because we have all experienced, we've all been the recipients, even at a young age, of the positive impact of good leadership in our lives and the negative impact of poor leadership in our lives. 
We've all, we are all able to tell stories, whether it be from a teacher or a coach or someone in church that we grew up in or whatever role that they may have uh, carried out in our lives, but we're all able to tell stories of ways that people have impacted us in a significant way as a result of good leadership. And then we can also all tell stories of those who have impacted us in a negative way through poor leadership, things that have been said to us that either put us in the trajectory of the way that we needed to go or moved us in the direction of a place that we didn't need to go, either believing things about ourselves that we shouldn't and so on and so forth. Leadership in our lives matters. It's a huge, huge deal. But let me say this. In the world, oftentimes what grips people about leadership is they want to be seen as a great leader. But if you dig into that even a little bit more specifically, what grips the heart of men and women throughout the world is oftentimes it's not so much the responsibilities that need to happen for that great leader, but the title and the position of leadership. See, we're selfish people. Selfish ambition uh, is all in us. And so we long to be a people who are seen as holding a position or carrying a title that points to us as important as significant as leaders. I can remember this has happened to me two times in particular where I was offered a position of leadership and I felt that well up within me. The first time was when I was leading crew, uh, when, I, well, when I was on staff with crew at the University of Georgia. I was not the leader of that ministry, but I was on the staff team. I get a call from the regional office and they say, Jeff, we'd like for you to go back to University of Alabama um, and go back to your alma mater and lead the crew ministry there. Now, that may not sound like a big deal to you, but to me, that was a huge deal. That was the ministry that God had used to do an incredible work in my life. To be able to go back there and to lead a movement of college students who were seeking after Jesus, to make his name known on the campus and throughout the world, man, this was a big deal. But I felt within me that selfish ambition of, I get to carry the title of campus director of the University of Alabama of crew. I look back on that now and go, who even knows what that is? But at the time, that was alluring. And I had a friend, a close friend, sit me down, not because he was seeing it, but he just good person to, to uh, dig into my heart. He said, Jeff, are you wanting this position for the right reasons? Are you wanting it because of the position or are you wanting it because you genuinely long to, to step into what's going to come with that kind of leadership? I said, that's a good question. The second time was when Randy came to me here and said, Jeff, we're looking at you uh, to be my successor. After I pulled myself off the floor and gathered myself, not sure what to say. If I had had a, um, a way to look into the future and see what 2020 and 21 behold, beheld, I would have said, hey, you just stay right where you are, Randy. <laughs> How about I jump on board maybe 22 or 23, something like that now. Uh, and God's sovereign, good plan. It was the right time. And, and, and there was that that came up within me again. Oh, to be, to be pastor of Perimeter Church. That sounds good. The title, the position. See, the world and even our sinful nature wants to make leadership about a position to hold or a title to have. But the scriptures make it abundantly clear that leadership in the kingdom of God is about a lifestyle to live out of a heart that is radically dependent upon Jesus. A lifestyle to live. Who cares about the title or the position? It's about a lifestyle to live out of a heart that is radically dependent upon Jesus. He's the leader. He's the leader of his church. And in his good plan, he has called a lot of broken, incomplete, but in process leaders to lead his church. And so we radically depend on him to do what only he can do in his church through leaders. Sinful, broken leaders, but leaders nonetheless. So where do we go with this? What do we do with church leadership? Well, the Bible actually speaks a significant amount about leadership. In, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of examples of, 
of leadership through various individuals and even the systems that God put into place of how the tribes of Israel would be led and so on and so forth. You get the New Testament and there's four prominent passages. Let me read to you this quote from Daniel Aiken from his commentary on Titus. He says this, God believes leadership of the local church is so important that he addresses the issue in detail four times in the New Testament. Acts 20, 20, 28 through 38, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9, that's what we're going to look at today, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Emphasis in each list falls on a leader's personal character and theological competency. God is primarily interested in who you are and then in what you do. He's primarily interested in who you are and then in what you do. Last week, we began our series, the new year of the new year called Salt and Light. What does it look like for the church to live out its identity of of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world? If you missed last week's sermon, then I would encourage you, go back and listen to it because it's the foundation for the whole series. And so we were in the book of Matthew last week, laying that foundation. And for the rest of our series, we're going to be in the book of Titus answering four important questions. And today the question is, what is leadership to look like in the church? What is leadership to look like in the church? Next week we'll look at what is the church to teach? The next week we'll look at what is the church to be centered on? And then lastly, in week four, we'll talk about what is the church to be devoted to? But this week, what is leadership in the church to look like. And so to do that, we're going to read through and study the first chapter, most of the first chapter of Titus uh, chapter one. Let me give you a little bit of context before we jump in. Uh, Titus has been described by some as the most mysterious figure in early Christian history. In fact, Sir William Ramsey, the the famous uh, Christian archaeologist of the 19th and early 20th century said that. And one of the reasons he said that is because we just don't know much about Titus. Titus is not mentioned at all in the book of Acts, which is the the history book of the early church that we have for us in our Bibles. Um, But he's mentioned later on a number of times, nine times, in fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And what do we learn about him through those mentions in 2 Corinthians is that he and Paul are close. And we begin to pick up on the fact that Paul uh, most likely led Titus to the Lord. And Paul was a Jew converted to Christianity. We learned that Titus was a Greek. He was a non-Jew that Paul was able to lead to the Lord in his missionary journeys. Then we learned that Titus began to join Paul on those journeys to go and preach the gospel and establish establish churches throughout the ancient uh, near Middle East. And so Titus and Paul were tight. Uh, But we also learned that Paul entrusted Titus with a lot. For example, the Corinthian church in particular, uh, we have two letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, but there were a series of letters, some of which we don't have preserved for us. And we learn in 2 Corinthians that there was a letter that Paul had given to Titus to take to the Corinthians, and it was a letter of harsh rebuke to the Corinthians. And he talks about how he was waiting on Titus. He was eagerly awaiting the return of Titus to to hear, how did the Corinthians receive my letter? So Titus was the messenger. He was the carrier of the letter. He was the one that was ministering to the Corinthians in Paul's absence. Then, sure enough, eventually Titus comes back. He says, yes, they received your, your rebuke well. Paul rejoices, and then he writes what we know as 2 Corinthians where he even says, I'm so glad you received in, in, a, in a good way my letter that I'd previously sent. Now, how did Titus end up where he is? You're gonna notice as we read that he's on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And he's been left there by Paul to appoint elders, to point, appoint leaders to the beginnings of churches that probably came about on a missionary journey with Paul after the book of Acts. And so Paul and Titus probably went there together. And in Paul's eagerness to get to Rome and then ultimately to Spain, he left Titus in charge of the churches as pastor over the churches in Crete. Quick couple of thoughts on Crete. Crete was crazy. 
It was a crazy pagan land full of crazy pagan people. That was the context of Crete. You'll, we won't read this part this morning, but in the latter cha- uh, part of chapter one, uh, it says this. Paul's quoting one of the prophets of the Cretans, uh, a guy that we think is, his name was Epidemonus. And he says this. He says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. You're writing about your own people, and that's what you say. Hey, there's not much good to say here, guys. Evil beasts, liars, gluttons. That's who we are. It is a pagan, pagan land. It was the mythical birthplace of Zeus, and it was a place that was largely infatuated with the worship of the Roman emperor as the universal savior. So this is where Paul says, Titus, young leader in the faith, you're in charge. I'm hopping on a ship trying to get over to Rome. And we don't know much about Titus, but I know if I'm in Titus' shoes, I go, uh, thanks, I guess. It's a tall task. But it's a, it's a task to establish and plant churches with godly leaders, not too unlike the world we know today. And so let's see what Paul says to uh, to Titus as he left him in charge. He says this, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our savior of God, our savior to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. Let me pause and just say this real, real briefly. It's very tempting for us. If you've read the Bible before to, when you read the new Testament epistles, the letters of Paul and of Peter and of John uh, and some of these others that uh, you, it's really easy and tempting to skip over the salutation. The first few verses, because you're like, oh, they're just saying hello and grace and peace and just things that they would say in that culture. But, but sometimes, often, there's a lot of meat there that we don't wanna skip over. So for example, in this one, Paul is immediately identifying himself, one, as a slave. He says, I'm a servant, which can also be translated slave. I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he's saying uh, in one breath, I am of the most humble position. And in the other breath, but I come on the, on the charge of my Lord Jesus with great authority, a servant, but yet also an apostle. Then it says four things that are critical about what's true of a Christian. He says, I'm writing for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, so that we be a people of, of faith, we be a people of, uh, of, of the knowledge of truth, and that we were, are to be a people of godliness. And then lastly, the fourth thing he says is, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, huge, promised before the world began. Wait, what? That makes our mind kind of blow a little bit. But we see that we are to be a people of faith, of knowledge, of godliness, and of hope in this eternal life that God himself promised, and he never lies, so therefore we can take it to the bank. And oh, by the way, remember, our God is so big, our God is so majestic, our God is so beyond us, he is so unsearchable and immeasurable that he's outside of space and time. And so what seems like he didn't promise to you until sometime in the Old Testament, he actually promised before the beginning of time itself. And you go, okay. That's significant. You also see some of, God, uh, of Paul's theology, his understanding, his belief about the Trinity, about the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, specifically about the Father and the Son because he says of the Father, God our Savior, and then he says of the Son, Christ Jesus our Savior, which he is very subtly but very, uh, very pronounced saying, look, they're equal in power and substance and glory. And they're our Savior one God existing in three persons. But then he gets to verse five and he gives the thesis statement, right? If you've been in school, you know that you always start your paper, your term paper, whatever with here's why 
here's what I'm going to be talking about. Here's the big theme, the big focus of what I'm writing. And so he does that in verse five. He says this, okay, this Titus, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. So that you might put what remained, we started something there, remember? And, and I want to leave you there because I trust you as a godly leader to take what remains and to put it into order. You say, okay. Titus says, gotcha. How do I do that? So he tells the very next thing. So you do this by appointing elders in every town as I directed you, which means Paul and Titus had had a conversation about this. Maybe it was on the, on the ship to Crete. They had talked about, all right, here's what you're going to do. When you get there, I want you to go to town to town to town where we began the beginnings of a church there. And I want you to appoint godly leaders because the church will not succeed if it doesn't have godly leaders in place. If it doesn't have elders to lead the church. Titus, you can't do it by yourself. This is a 146 mile long island and this is a crazy island. So we need to trust God through prayer and supplication to raise up godly leaders that you then appoint who will help lead these churches. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you this now, but then just know I'm going to send you a letter later to have it in writing so that you can keep coming back to it and not forget that if you're going to put into order what remains, it starts of utmost importance. It starts with godly leadership. And then he begins to define what that godly leadership is. Verse six, if anyone is above reproach. And most of us already go, okay, disqualified. I'm not even sure what above reproach means, but I'm pretty sure I don't have it. That's my, that might be temp, the temptation that you have right now, even in reading that. What does above reproach mean? Well, above reproach means that uh, it doesn't mean that it is someone without blemish, because that's not possible. We're all blemished. We're all sinful. It's not sinlessness. It's not without blemish, but it does mean this, that it means in the way of reputation, in the way of conduct and life in every phase of our lives, it means that we are without blame. It means that Titus is looking for leaders, godly leaders who are without blame in their reputation. There is nothing that someone can say about them that would disqualify them from leadership. They are above reproach. And Paul is so uh, uh, focused on this that he mentions it twice. If you skip down, I'll come back and read what I'm skipping over. But if you skip down to verse 7, he says, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. By the way, the word overseer in this passage and the word elder in this passage are two different Greek words, but meaning the same role, the same office, if you will. The first one that is translated elder is the word presbyteros, which if you say it in the, in the proper southern thick accent is presbyteros, Presbyterian. You may not know this, but Perimeter Church is a part of a denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America. And one of the things that caused the Presbyterian Church to become what it did after the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, what distinguished Presbyterians from Baptists and Methodists and so forth, often uh, what the distinguishing factor was, was church government. How do you translate these passages? And we said that we are going to be a denomination that are led by overseers, by elders, by presbyteros, by those who are presbyters, elders. Now, this word overseer, the one that's translated in verse 7 as overseer, is the Greek word, um, uh, uh, why am I drawing a blank? Uh, excuse me? As soon as I say it, you're going to go, and many of you are going, uh, uh, episkopos, thank you. I, somebody said it down here, I don't know who said it, but episcopalian, right? But it means overseer, but then the, imp, the, uh, the implication of that, of how you then translate that, determines how the Episcopalians see it a little differently than we do. We see it in this text, we translate it as the same office, that overseer and elder are the same responsibility within the church. The Bible also makes clear 
in 1 Timothy and all four of these passages that elders, and I'm only speaking about elders today because that's all that Paul talks about in this letter to Titus. He doesn't talk about deacons or anything else in this letter. I'm only speaking about elders today. And the Bible makes clear that elders are to be men. Now, women, that does not mean that you check out at this point because you have a critical, critical role in the life and the leadership of the church. And you play a pivotal, critical role in making sure that the elders of the church, that that role is being filled by godly men according to the scriptures, according to this passage. And so an elder, an elder is to be above reproach, which we could say this. We could say, what does that mean? Yeah, it means without blame, but we could say in general, it means a faithful man. I think that's going to come up here. Yeah, there we go. In general, a faithful man above reproach. But Titus or Paul to Titus gets pretty specific as to what that means. First, it means a faithful man in his home. Someone once said that uh, leadership in the church is the proving, uh, leadership in the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. So it starts as being a faithful man in the church. I mean, I'm sorry, in the family to be a leader in the church. So he says this right there in verse six. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And then he says again, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. So in his home, he's a faithful husband and he's a faithful father. Now there's, a, there's some debate over the years, over the centuries, as what does that mean exactly? That he's the husband of one wife? Does that mean that to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ that you have to be married? We would say no. Uh, I think Paul in, in, in some ways here is assuming that most of those who would uh, be in this position would be married, but it, we don't see any qualification here that you have to be married. But if you are married, you are the husband of one wife. It literally translates a one woman man. Uh, one commentator put it this way. What this is getting at is it's getting at an unsullied lifelong reputation for devotion to his wife and to sexual purity. So a faithful man in his home as a faithful husband and a faithful man in his home as a faithful follower. This, the passage reads like this. It says, and his children are believers. We'll talk about that in just a second. And not open to the charge of debauchery. Think wild. That word can also be translated wild. They're not wild or, and instead of insubordination, you could, use, you could also use the word disobedient. So your children are not wild or disobedient. Again, many parents are going, okay, count me out. Didn't pass that one. Uh, here's what this is getting at, okay? And then what about this thing about, am I disqualified to be an elder in God's church? If, if all of these things are, are things that I'm striving for, and I'm telling you, I have poured the gospel and the scriptures into my children to the extent that I, uh, as much as I possibly know how, but they, they, don't, they don't follow Jesus. What is does that mean that I'm disqualified? Uh, we would say no. I love this quote from Brian Chapel. Brian is our stated clerk in our denomination. And he says this. He says, we are not talking about this verse. He says, we're not necessarily looking at the beliefs and actions of one child, but at the character of the family as a whole. Our assessment is to be based on observations of children's conduct and convictions made over time, not on isolated statements or actions. So uh, what we're getting at here, what Paul is getting at here is a man who is faithful as a father to impart his scriptures. And the expectation would be that they be believers. And the qualification would certainly be that they not be given to debauchery or to insubordination. So a faithful man, a faithful man in his home, but also a faithful man in his character. Look at verse eight, verses seven and eight. It says, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. That's a heck of a list. 
there's a lot there that immediately falls heavy on our hearts. So let's walk through it briefly here. Again, we're not asking for men. We're not asking God to raise up leaders within his church who are all these things perfectly. But we're asking for God to raise up leaders in his church who are seeking through the power of the Holy Spirit within them to be these things increasingly more as we are made more and more into the image of Jesus. We're not without blemish. Not arrogant. Some of these are self-explanatory, but that's not prideful, right? That's, that's a, a people who are leading God's people in such a way that is out of the Beatitudes. Poor in spirit, meek, humble, not quick-tempered, but like our Lord, slow to speak, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Not a drunkard. Bible teaches that it is okay for Christians to partake in an alcoholic drink, but with great wisdom and discernment as it pertains to the weaker brother. What the Bible is very clear on is drunkenness, and that is not something that we then take and say, well, how close to the line can I get before I'm drunk? The question for a godly leader in Christ's church is never how close can I get to the line of sin. It's always how holy can I be to the glory of my Father. Always. Not given to, drunkard, to drunkenness. Not violent. Not greedy for gain. That's talking about money. A godly leader sees money not as something to possess, but something to steward as a gift from God to his glory. Hospitable. That word hospitable means loving strangers. I mean, certainly it involves having a really cool kitchen that you can entertain in. That could be part of it. But what this is getting at is loving strangers and loving them like Jesus. Lover of good, whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is trustworthy, whatever is godly. Think about, be about, love those things. Self-control, that word is getting at being sensible of sound mind, thinking rationally, thinking prudently. Upright, that means fair. Mimicking our Savior in his, in his righteousness and in his justice. It, it can be performing one's duty to man is one way to think about that. And then right behind that is holy, that we would be holy, meaning set apart, unique, different from the world around us. You can also think of holy as performing one's duty to God. And then lastly, discipline. This is the same word that's listed last in the fruit of the Spirit and it means being able to, through the power of the Spirit within you, curb, curb and master sinful impulses. So three things that should be true of a man who aspires to be an elder. The first one is that healthy churches are led by godly leaders. That's the first overall point I want to give you. A faithful man in his home, a faithful man in his character Secondly, healthy, healthy churches are led by godly leaders who hold fast to the word of God. So not only is he a faithful man in his home, not only is he, faith, is he a faithful man in his character, but he's a faithful man of the word. And you'll see here in verse nine, this is where we get this. He must hold, up, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the responsibility of an elder, of an overseer. The responsibility is to be a man of the word who can encourage, instruct, and who can rebuke those who are outside the bounds of sound doctrine. And that leads us to the third point because the rest of chapter one, verses 10 through 16, I encourage you to read it and study it on your own, is about that second responsibility of a leader to rebuke those who are outside the bounds of sound doctrine. Healthy churches are led by godly leaders who refute unsound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, he says, look, there's Judaizers who have 
come among you. And they are teaching churches in Crete that they need to be circumcised if they really want to be in right with God, that they need to adhere to Jewish holidays and systems. And I'm telling you, Titus, when somebody comes in preaching a gospel that is not Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, when it's in any shape, form, or fashion by the works of man and not entirely by the grace of God, you rebuke them sharply because they are a people that do not belong in the church of God. Now, in the context of scripture, we know based on other things Paul wrote that that rebuking is always done with gentleness in the hopes that they would repent and believe the gospel. But if they don't, then the sharpness of a biblical leader, of a godly leader, has to be on display for the preservation and the unity of his church. So let me summarize what we've talked about so far today. This is what's true of the office of eldership. The office of eldership is given in scripture to provide spiritual nurture and protection for the church. Elders are to shepherd the flock of Jesus Christ through the faithful ministry of the word and are to lead by godly example. Thinking about that godly example, listen to this quote by the Puritan Richard Baxter. I love this. He says this, take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hinderers of the success of your own labors. It's a high calling. It's a high calling to be a leader, a godly leader in God's church. Lastly, here's what elders are ultimately to be. This is from the book, Elders in the Life of the Church. Let me read this to you and then we'll wrap up. We need leaders in the church who will set aside their preferences for the purpose of maintaining the unity and truth and love. We need elders who will sacrifice their individual priorities for the sake of the congregations. We need men who will labor both to understand their brothers and carefully heed the scriptures rather than stake out an uninformed position and remain unwilling to learn. We need men who love God and the church more than themselves. I'll close with this. I long to be that man. And our elders long to be those men. Just so you know, the way that our church is set up is that there are nine elders that I report to that are my governing board, so to speak, to where I don't, this church is not run on thus saith Jeff. I am the visionary leader and lead teacher of the church. But uh, as I think upon and dream and pray upon the vision of this church, I have to bring it before the elders and say, do you agree? Are you with me on this? Is there anywhere I'm off base? And if so, they tell me. They ask me questions of accountability. They make sure that in every way that they can deem possible, they are making sure that I am this kind of leader, broken as I am. And then we have over 300 other elders and their job is to shepherd the flock. Each one of them has a pool. If you're a member of Perimeter Church, you are under a shepherd, elder, who is to be to you what this passage is. To live out as a godly example among you, godly leadership. To shepherd you, to encourage you, and, Lord willing, this is not needed, to rebuke you if you're out of the bounds, outside the bounds of sound doctrine. Now, let me tell you something. Every single elder in this church, including myself, and all of our pastors who are elders, we will disappoint you. We will not perfectly lead you. We are not unblemished. And so that is why a godly leader is not about a position to hold or a title to have, but a lifestyle to live, here's the key point, in radical dependence upon the only one who is unblemished, Jesus. He is the, the leader, the one who leads his church in triumphal 
procession. And so we cling to him as your leaders. And then lastly, could I ask of you that you would pray for your elders? Would you pray for your elders daily? And your officers, your deacons as well. I know I didn't talk about deacons today. That'll be in another sermon. But your officers who are serving and seeking to lead you as godly leaders, would you pray for them? In fact, if you're an officer in this church, could you stand real quick? If you're an elder or a deacon, would you stand up? For those who are standing around you, I want you to just look, and I know they have masks on, so just maybe remember their eyes. They had beautiful eyes. No. Would you just take note of who's close to you? And afterwards, as soon as the service is over, I know we had this whole exit strategy and we got to get people out in different ways. But just walk up to them and say, hey, I don't know your name. What's your name? And they tell you and you say, I'm going to pray for you every day. I'm going to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you for seeking to be a Titus One leader. So pray for your officers, your elders, and your deacons. I think I've said last, lastly three times. This is the true lastly. If we're going to be a salt and light church, if we're going to be a people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it starts with our leadership. We're the godly examples. Father, would you, would you make the leaders of Perimeter Church Titus 1 leaders, Lord, we know we won't be that perfectly. We thank you that we are tied to, we are united with the perfect one, the one who leads us perfectly, you, King Jesus. And so, oh Lord, by your grace and by your goodness, would you be so kind to do a work that only you can do in and through Perimeter church unto your glory. And would you do it and start it and continue it through good, godly leadership? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close together by singing to our King. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.